So our guest today is Barry Waite. And Barry was uh, started out at the, uh, at the ground level at Apple shortly after he graduated from college. Uh, his, I don't know if we'll have time to get into how he was hired, but it's a very interesting story. Um, and then uh, moved up over time, uh, was one of the people that was in charge of the uh, program to sell uh, Apple computers, Macintoshes and such through colleges. And eventually rose to the ranks of senior vice president of Apple before he left. Today, he is the proprietor and owner of Tambor Bay Vineyards, uh, really just one of the finest vineyards creating great reds and great whites out in uh, Napa. If, if you get out, if you get a chance to get to Napa, go to Calistoga and drop by Tambor Bay Vineyards and you'll, you will not regret that uh, stop. So, uh, Barry, thank you for joining us and tell us a little bit uh, about your uh, initial work at Apple. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, a, once again, when I seem to find each other on these uh, circuitous paths of life and figuring out businesses. Uh, a couple things. Uh, first, uh, we could drop the senior and the vice president role. Some people might get uh, kind of rattled on that one. So uh, I only got to the, the VP level for a period of time. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about the Macintosh. Um, so, uh, the question was how I got there into the Mac group yeah, and so forth. Uh, I started in Apple uh, in 1980 and uh, was a pretty low-level grunt at the time because, as you said, it was pretty close right after college and I got into that. Um, but uh, I got invited to join uh, the Mac team in the marketing department and, uh, you know, helped, you know, define channels and, and work with entities before the Macintosh was introduced. And as many people know, if you follow the history of it, um, the Mac was truly introduced at the Super Bowl uh, in 1984 by one of the most extraordinary commercials, I think even to today's standards, uh, that went out there. And uh, I was very fortunate that I got to uh, uh, pursue uh, selling and marketing the Macintoshes to universities across the country for a number of years. Um, so that's just kind of my little background into it. Now, I did spend 14 years at Apple. Uh, had many, many jobs, uh, moved a couple times with the company, um, and, uh, but uh, started and finished in Cupertino, which uh, was one of the great professional runs of life. How fortunate to be part of something like that, um, you know, because back in, you know, 1980, you know, who knew what Apple was going to be? Um, matter of fact, I didn't even know the name of the company until it was, you know, I was kind of into the uh, interview process. Um, but uh, I got caught up into it and uh, believed the, uh, the preachings of Steve. We were going to change the world. And, um, you know, that was, a good, that was a good step in that direction. And, and it happened. Uh, you know, it, I, I believe today it's the single most valuable company in the world by market cap. Uh, it is. Two trillion. It is. You know, but if I could just say something about that, you know, Apple had uh, a couple of lives. You know, we had, and I call V1, V2 of, of Steve's two different lives there. You know, in V1, you know, he started the company in, uh, uh, not mistaken, 1978, uh, 77, somewhere in that time frame, went public two or three years later. Um, but then he was, um, which if you read the book, you know, he was ceremonially uh, escorted out of the company in a sense um, in 1985. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people will say that was a good move. And I'm, 
you know, I, I, I'm on the fence of that one. I mean, the, the man was so inspiring, but, you know, he had uh, some, as other people know, he was, he was a difficult guy to work for. And I think that was uh, becoming of light in some of the activities that he was doing. But look, he came back in 1997 as part of the next acquisition. Next was a technology that Steve had started and so forth. Apple uh, bought that in there. So look, at between that time of 85 and specifically when he came back in 97, Apple was not a healthy company. And I think what is such a great story that I know it's a little off target, I think, where you want to go, but it's a great story about a guy who started a company, literally, let's just say, got fired, uh, but came back and saved the company and saved it so much that it is his architecture and his leadership and inspiration that has now created the most uh, valued company on the planet. Um, and I give Cook a lot of credit for, you know, taking that imagery and creating a business model over the last 10 years that really uh, maturated that. But what a story. What a story. Um, well, and, now, I never did Steve after 1985. Never ran into him, never talked to him. So I'm only a V1 guy. I only know him for that. Uh, but sure. I did follow him. Uh, I buy Apple products. So I got more Apple crap around my house than uh, than most people just because I love the logo. And uh, as many of us said back in those days, uh, I bled the colors of Apple in, 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 you know, inside me and, and still do today. What a gift to be at the beginning of something that, and to work with a one of the just really small handful of uh, leaders that has has built something so life changing for so many people. I, I just think getting that, but I, I want to make sure I get to this concept of selling the Macintosh. I mean, mm -hmm. it just seems crazy to me that you took a twenty five hundred dollar device and tried to sell it to college students and. It ended up doing success, doing it successfully. Can you talk a little bit about that, and also weave in the story of when you and Steve Jobs hit the road to to sell this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's put it in context. Uh, you know, Steve uh, led a drive on a number of products that had this new interface um, that we all take advantage of today. We all we all just see it uh, as it is, but. You know, before, you know, Apple came around, there wasn't an interface where we're using a mouse or icons on a screen and so forth. But there there was uh, a precursor to the Macintosh called the Lisa computer, L-I-S-A. And uh, we, we were told at the time that the Lisa stand for the Local Integrated System Architecture. Uh, we have now subsequently found that it was very much uh, the name of his, uh, his daughter. <laughs> so uh, Steve had, you know, some pretty good power, but, um, you know, that probably didn't have a good marketing sense to it. So uh, local integrated system architecture sounded pretty official. Now, the Lisa came out over a year earlier. It was Steve's, you know, pet project for a while. And as, as I know it, so I wasn't part of the Lisa group or anything like that, but Steve, I believe, was removed from the leadership of that project. And he had to go do some other things, obviously. And so he picked up on this, uh, you know, less expensive kind of model and started progressing on that one. Now, the Lisa, when it came out, was $10,000. I mean, you know, put that in today's terms, right? So just go 4X. What did you say? It was like $7,000? Okay, so that was a... $7,600, so it'd be 3X, yeah. Yeah, so that's just a, that's just a lot of, of money for the computer. Now, the Lisa did break ground. Uh, I was uh, uh, fortunate to, at that time to be in the sales organization when it came out and uh, and showed it to a lot of folks. And it was a lot of oohing and on, but not a lot of people buying. It was targeted toward the business market. 
Uh, Apple, let's back up even further. Apple tried to bring a computer called the Apple III to the business world, and it failed fairly significantly. Um, a lot of which, quite frankly, had to do with they didn't put a big enough fan in the damn computer. And so it kept breaking down. So, of course, businesses, as soon as I got on the market, you know, that, that, that didn't go well. So, so the Lisa comes out. I think it was 1982, maybe 83. And then um, I didn't do so well. But Steve uh, jumped over and basically manhandled the, the control of this new project that uh, subsequently came out as the Macintosh. Uh, it was a skunks group. Uh, we were the people there that worked in it. You know, we called ourselves the pirates. Um, my job was mostly to uh, to help uh, just the thinking of what markets should we be in, where should we go, and I had you know a lot of good uh, sales field experience, and so I was working with the likes of uh, Dan Lewin uh, and others that are um, uh, you know big namesakes in the project as well. Uh, it. it uh, it was a project that seemed always behind and over budget. Um, and then, you know, it came out um, with a $2,500 price tag. Now, again, I wasn't involved in those decisions. That was, you know, other marketeers uh, that were doing that inside the company, including Steve. And I, I, I do believe that was a very controversial, uh, controversial number. Uh, a, it's very expensive. I mean, but it, it's only a third or a, half or a quarter of the cost of the, of the Lisa. So I think there is some yin and yang on, on all the sides of that. And um, if you really kind of, um, if you go about a year out after the introduction, the, the Macintosh had a couple bumps along the way. It did not do well in the general market. It's certainly the business community uh, was not ready to adapt it because it quite frankly didn't have the software. Uh, it was expensive. Uh, it's certainly very expensive as a consumer computer. And uh, look at it, we were told not to sell it to K-12 education because the Apple II, which was the cash cow of Apple, was so well entrenched in that market. And so, uh, which actually also created a divide. So look at uh, Apple had its, its uh, kingdoms inside. We had the Mac group, obviously. We had the Lisa group trying to survive. And we had the Apple II organization. And so um, it, it, there was there's good tension between all this, which not necessarily bad. Uh, tension, I think, you know, creates urgency just in general. And I think that's good, but nonetheless. So what uh, one of the, the brainchilds, not mine, believe me, I did not come up with this idea, was to sell the computers to uh, universities, but in a very different way. And that was to actually sell the computers in a resale consideration to the university and give them full license to sell it to faculty, staff, and students. And in that resale environment, um, the powers of be, and I guess I'm gonna say Daniel Lewin really had, uh, I give him credit for that, of convincing Apple to do so at half the price. So that $2,500 computer, we're selling to the universities for 1,250 bucks. Now all of a sudden that becomes, you know, that's a feasible computer. And I'll also suggest that, um, and this was this bared out in a little bit of the research I did, but it bared out that it, you know universities um, are liberal thinkers. We know that anyway, but also in how they um, they just do things, and um, so they were very, um, I want to say, acceptive of this new technology. 
But here's where the argument went from us, Apple, and I did a lot of this, was going to the university and saying, look, it, we'll sell you this computer at this really low price. You sell it to your faculty, staff, and students. You mark it up as you see fit. We did not dictate that, couldn't by legal law anyway. But then use that money that you did, your profitability, you don't have shareholders, but put it back into the universities for IT infrastructure, for laboratories, for networks, things like that. And in some cases, uh, and I did help orchestrate some of the biggest distributions of the Macintosh in history up to that point at least, one of which was the University of Michigan. We did it within a year. Uh, we distributed, if I'm not mistaken, 2,700 computers in a weekend, in two days, right? Two faculty, staff, and students. I mean, we literally changed uh, the land, the computing landscape of one of the most premier universities on campus. Uh, I mean, in the United States, University of Michigan. And it, by the way, what universities do is they look at each other's universities, and there's a lot of I want to be like them. So all of a sudden, we were doing, and we called this the the big deal. We 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 did another one months later at the University of Minnesota, which has the second largest population uh, of university students in the United States. And then it just pervasively went all over the country. And so by uh, some measures, and uh, I'm not sure this is a, an official declaration, but I believe by year three-ish, two or three, we had sold as many Macintoshes into the university channel as all, as all other channels combined. And it really was in, a, in essence, a saving grace for the Macintosh to have one of the channels take off. By the way, that's that's all really just a good portfolio strategy, right? You have different markets, you you get in all of them in some degree, which ones work, which ones don't, de-invest, invest, you do all those kind of things with everything. This was just a great strategy that pervaded out in a market that I had you know, a bit to do with, and that was fantastic. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. So anyway, that's how the Mac came about. That's what I did in and uh, what happened in universities. And uh, it was the first resale program in universities ever for computing or up to that point. And now I think universities have their full resale centers of selling Dells and everything else that goes on there. So, you know, uh, it all worked. Um, certainly worked in Apple's favor to be first mover in that um, that market strategy. So, so first of all, I want to get to the Vision Pro question. But before that, just for color, um, you and Steve headed out on the road to to sell these at one point. What was what's what was that like being on the road with Steve Jobs? Uh, you know, you can cry a number of times during a day for all different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Um, you know, the road show, uh, both before the Mac was introduced to select audiences, and then certainly after. And um, uh, it, it look at as we all know, and if we can all see speeches of Steve, he's one of the most inspiring speakers ever. And, um, and so I got to see that at times, multiple times a day. Uh, now we also know that Steve has a demanding. Oh, my screen just went completely white. So I don't know if I'm still there. We can see you. You sound great and you look great. Okay, great. I'll just keep going then. Um, Steve, Steve had uh, a challenging uh, personality, uh, some of which is his standards were just incredibly high. Um, 
but that not only was in his demands of his product uh, and what it needed to look like. And, you know, we, we go read Isaac's book. You'll, you'll get way into that thread. But he was also just a difficult man at times to be with. And a lot of it had to do with his, just his personality uh, and his high level of standards and what people did. So, um, you, you know, to suggest that you um, walked on eggs almost all the times that you're with him is it um you know there's a few times we went out to dinner and i'll say they were not pleasant and <laughs> had nothing to do with what we did but it's just the the as you, as you know someone can dictate a mood yeah, steve could um but you know steve i give him credit for, uh, for so many things uh but you know when when it came to showtime you know, he he put his pants on and like a like an athlete went out and just wowed it every single time so and, so that's uh, I want to contrast that, and I know that you you are not privy to um, what's happening at Apple today, but but I just want to use some of your learnings to to think about how Apple may move forward with this new Vision Pro headset that they rolled out. Tim Cook, obviously not Steve Jobs, um, you know, he probably is not as visionary. We know that he um, is not going to stand up and give the motivational speech, he, but but he certainly has rolled out a product that has the potential to be very significant. Um, and and yeah. they put it out at a, at a fairly high price, a price that Microsoft has been selling their HoloLens at about $3,500 and really has not moved that many of them. Um, and, and people are stepping back and saying, you know, well, Microsoft is not Apple. So they roll it out at $3,500, half the price really of what the Macintosh rolled out at, uh, but seven times more expensive than the MetaQuest 3 that's coming out. So talk to me a little bit about if you were Tim Cook, um, how, what are your thoughts on where they go from here with, uh, with this device, just from, from the knowledge you have in this sort of an arena? You know, I, I, I have no right to be put in a camp, <laughs> Steve, or of Cook's shoes in his thinking. My observation, uh, and I've, I've tried to be an observer, is um look is a masterful business planner he is uh he comes from that operational side the supply chain that's where he came from and uh you know obviously got the confidence of steve um as he got into senior leadership and steve gave him the reins uh before steve passed um where, where does where does uh, mr cook go with this and so forth apple has always premised itself and I say always on the basis of the brand, the brand of Apple. And, uh, and, and I got to see that back in the days of selling computers to schools. And that's was part of the strategy, get them young, get them branded with the logo. And, uh, and we know today that that was incredibly successful. And we know that's successful in other products. People will buy something just for the brand, even though it may be even a deficient, in this case of technology or, or some quality control. Um, so look at it, and also pricing strategy, since that seems to be uh, the thread of your uh, inquiry, you know, it's, it's very, it's easier to lower a price than raise a price. And by setting a standard out there, you're saying, what you're saying this product is superior 
And for all the Apple advocates, uh, they, they are going to believe that to a certain degree. The question, be, I think, becomes, and if I want to relate it back to my days, is this an Apple Lisa or is this a, a Macintosh or is this, you know, some other product out there? You know, is it going to carry itself long enough uh, to get, you know, decent market acceptance? I mean, without a doubt, and I'm not, Steve, you're much more proficient in this world than I am, certainly, but I think it's the coolest looking of the headsets I've ever seen. Um, and, uh, but I haven't had one on my head yet, and uh, I don't know its functionality. Um, but, you know, when we have a suggested retail price, then Apple has the latitude, as we did way back when, in all these different markets to have different pricing strategies for quantity discounts, uh, for channel-specific discounts, for all these kind of good things that most people, and I'm going to say most, are going to be able to buy at less than that SRP price onto that. Um, and of course, Apple will watch that carefully, and I think they're far more sophisticated today in understanding their their um, their direction of success or failure than we were way back when. Right? Um, we have better tools today, by far, to do that. Well, what I find interesting is that if you look at like Microsoft and their Xbox, or you look at Meta and their Quest Two headset, they're willing to sell their hardware at break even or a loss and make their money on the software sales that accompany that device. Apple has always had the, from what I understand, and I want you to talk to me about this, it seems like Apple has always made the decision, we are not going to sell it our, our hardware at a loss, it's going to be a profit center. And, and they pull it off. And they also make money on their software, obviously. So you know, talk to us a little bit about that decision and, um, Apple's role view of it. Well, historically, Apple was a hardware company, and that's where we made our money. And you know, gross margins on hardware was was our game. Uh, and we we internally talked about that day after day. What Cook has done is he's made, and if you look at the profitability of Apple, there's some nutty number: 80, 90 percent of the profitability comes from services. So he has flipped the model, at least for a company success. Um, so it, it's interesting that they came out with an ultra premium price for this. And I don't know if there are services side to underneath it. And Steve, again, I'm, I'm just going to confess, I don't know much about the product or its differentiation to others, but I don't know if there's, there's truly a technological uh, advantage to it. Uh, as we know, these Technology advantages are now very short-lived. Um, you know, we used to think we can uh, declare success and failure in my, my old days in seconds. Now it's milliseconds, right? And your imagery and your voice is communicated so quickly throughout the world that, uh, I mean, you know, how fast can people uh, of predominance get canceled, right, in a day? And uh, products can, can do the same thing. Apple, I think, has their secret advantage, and that's their brand through the years, and even more so in the last 10, has uh, been so entrenched and so uh, well-developed that uh, you know there's a level of success that will come just from that. Am I right that you worked with Guy Kawasaki in the marketing department? A little bit. You know, Guy was an evangelist for software, but he was also one of Steve's confidants. Confidence, confidence, yeah, whatever, you know what I mean. 
And uh, he was always coming up with uh, fantastic ideas. It's, you know, he is one of the most positive men I've ever met. And, uh, you know, loved watching him through his days after Apple, um, his, uh, his garage incubator program early on, and just everything about it. So Guy is, is one of those. He's, he's a true intellectual thinker and what could be done, but he always had a practicality, at least in my mind, behind all those things. And uh, yeah, he, he was a good guy. Now, I, again, I don't correspond with him or have any any relationship up to this point. You know, as you, as you pointed out at the beginning, I'm in the wine business now. And I had to make a decision to get out of the computing business <laughs> to get into this. And it, it would be hard to do both. But yes, uh, Guy was uh, a great contributor to uh, the success of Apple and those early days of the Macintosh. I assume some of his big ideas played a role in the success of the Macintosh. Yeah, I actually think he's the one that came up with the idea with uh, Dana Lewin uh, for creating this university uh, market strategy, which I got to implement. So, uh, you know, you know, full disclosure, but I think that's where that came from uh, and how to do that. And then, of course, you know, look, at you're going to you go to the senior management, you go to the board and you say, yeah, let's offer it to this channel at half price. That was not an easy quest. Yeah. And it created a turmoil all over the place. And the biggest one was with our uh, dealer network. And at that time there was no Apple stores. It was all dealer based. And they were, they were buying the product for resale uh, far more than what we were selling to universities. And the university could just buy them and use them and then sell at whatever price. That created channel conflict <laughs> to, to no end. Uh, but, you know, Steve and the, uh, the Apple management uh, stayed forth on it, and uh, it, it became a very successful strategy, obviously, for the Mac. Who was the genius behind the uh, famous 1984 Orwellian TV commercial that aired in the Super Bowl? You know, I remember when I first saw it, it just, the chill that I got, um, knew it was happening. Uh, there was a, a gal that was kind of in charge of the production side and, and, and I knew her, but the real brainchild, I believe behind this, uh, was Chai Day. And I think Chai himself, you know, uh, Apple hired, uh, a movie director, Ridley Scott. This is the first thing he did other than full motion pictures to do, but he treated this like a full motion picture. And I guaranteed you Apple paid him as if he was doing a full motion picture. But if you get inside it and you see the graphics that were used and some of the equipment, I think they tore apart uh, an airplane. I forget if it was a 747 or something, but, but a lot of the things you see on walls and so forth. I mean, it was it was extraordinary. It has imagery of uh, a movie called Alien that was made right about that same time. Um, but it was Chai Day that really came up with the brainchild of that. But, you know, look at uh, Chad and Steve had a special relationship, without a doubt. And they challenged each other and inspired each other. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a success of many things, uh, a lot of the campaigns. I also believed, and just to extend that, if I'm not mistaken, there was a campaign um, that came in the later days called Think Differently. Yeah. And I also believe that was uh, Chad's uh, campaign Great. came out. That was one of the best. 
two, two wrap-up questions. One, uh, one of our listeners, John, uh, says, I believe they claim that this iteration, the Vision Pro headset, will quickly be replaced by another at twice the price. Do you think that the current price is to prep consumers for the next price? Wow. That is, yeah, that, that's the, again, I don't know the products or the space, so uh, I can't say that. That's not surprising, though. Look at it. You know, Apple's got a lot of kahunas. Uh, they have the market muscle to do this. And if um, if they think that there's another product set, a value set, right, um, they, they may do that. But, uh, you know, but to their advantage, if they come out with multiple products, then they can really, I, oh, I could just go to town on my whiteboard back here, you know, uh, drawing up market strategies with that. You know, we, we tend to th think of products like this as just a one-off. Let's just see how this goes. You know, I can guarantee you Apple's got four or five iterations of this. They've got a two to three year strategy, pricing everything. And there's a ton of what ifs, what happened to that. But, you know, all of a sudden, if they look at if they come out, let's just be simple about this. If they come out with a, a headset that has more features and it's, you know, higher price, all of a sudden this one, let's price it 15, 20 percent less. Now it even looks more like the box I want to buy. So one maybe getting ready to be positioned as the volume leader while they'll have a, a higher end one. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there. It, it makes sense in the way they price iPhones, right? Because I buy the $1,200 iPhone and, and I don't blame because it's just like a monthly payment. Um, and, and, but I know that I started with like the $300 iPhone back in the day. Um, so, you know, they, they have various prices that you can you can hit depending on who you are and what, what you're willing to, to part with. So, so that kind of a model seems like right. it's, if it's successful in the marketplace, it's probably likely that they'll, you know, create premium versions of it. Okay, final question, nothing to do with Apple, nothing to do with technology. Barry, you and I both love wine. Uh, we both <laughs> love- Yes, uh, Steve. We've been on each other's porch. Yes, we a have. A couple times. We have. And um, so, so last question, and we're a little bit over time. Um, you have built, you, you were in the foundational era of Apple, and now you're, you built your own grape. Um, you switched fruits. What, what is the difference between building a vineyard and building a tech company? Well, I'll tell you the similarity, quite frankly. And it's what I learned at Apple. You know, when I decided to leave tech and leave operational stuff, I wanted to do something that still offered a, a, a clear path of creativity. I'm not a graphic artist, you know, I'm, I'm not the deepest thinker, but I, I just so enjoyed the freedom that I had at Apple to be creative in thought and how to do things and encouraged to do that to the point of failure. <laughs> I got a closet full of failures at Apple as does Apple has a closet full of products. And that's what I love about the wine business is the, uh, the, the notion of, um, of creativity. And what I also enjoy as a former product marketing person is I get to create stuff every year. When I think about the Macintosh in some respects, look at the Macintosh came out in 84 and it's been modified now over time but uh, you know in the wine business i think of it as every year we create a new product mother nature gives us something completely different than it did last year and in my market segment of wine 
my job is not to make wine like I did last year. It is not to be homogenous. There's plenty of wineries that do that, and that's good for them, and there's people that demand that. But, Steve, why you like Tambor Bay, I think, and why so many people do, is this curiosity of what does this vintage bring or what does this new wine bring? So I've gone overboard on this. I make 20 different wines for Tambor Bay. We've got 21 actually coming up. This year we're going to pick a, a new vineyard. Yeah, and it's going to be great. And that process of determining what that, for example, this new vineyard process of what we're doing, where we're getting it, how is it going to be differentiated, what we have, how does it fit into the product set? And quite frankly, uh, in two and a half years, three years, uh, when I come out with this, you and I are going to have the same discussion about price point because it's going to be our most expensive wine. Right? Yeah, where did I learn that? <laughs> right. um, but uh, uh, so that's its similarity. Here's the difference. If I could just have uh, 40 more seconds. The difference is in, in high tech, and this is probably in, in most businesses, but you there's a, something of an intellectual property that is so imperative to the value of that company. It, uh, and in tech, it's huge, right? Everything's a secret, and you protect it with legal crap all over the place. There's no such thing as IP in winemaking. None. It does have science, and there's ways of doing things. But when you get, again, to the level that I have built our company, our, our winery, it's about creativity and about being an artist. And um, the, the thousand decisions we make along the way of making a single wine in a single year, all are artistic. Uh, let me back up on that one. Most are artistic, taking what science we know, what tastes we have, things of that nature. And then, you know, having this ability to modify it to a profile that we think is really interesting and unique. I think you once told me that Napa Vintners will get together for coffee on a Saturday morning and, and just share IP. Oh, my gosh, yes. And uh, two weeks ago, as an example, I have three brand new Pinot Noirs that are now on the market. Three brand new, two from Sonoma, one from Santa Rita Hills and Santa Barbara. Uh, we invited five winemakers over and to give us a critique on each one of these. And not only were they tasting the one we just released, but we also let them taste the, uh, the, the same three Pinots from the next year that is still in barrel. And it's a completely collaborative process. Um, there's a saying that, uh, it, that Robert Mondavi said back in, in, in the 60s and 70s, all boats rise with the tide. And his notion was, if we talk about Napa and we protect each other as Napa, everybody in Napa will be successful. And I so love that and champion that with all my Vintner friends here. And uh, we do. We get together all the time. It gets back to what you were saying about brand. I think Napa is an equal brand to Apple, just in a different space. The best decision I ever made about being in the wine business is coming to Napa, uh, without a doubt. It's the best. And well, the here's people my here and the history is just fantastic. Here's my last comment, Barry. I'm hosting some entrepreneurs at my place here in Austin tonight. We're starting with uh, Tambor Bay Shard. And then I am go. my most expensive bottle of wine uh, that I have of yours, which is the Oakville Cab. So we will drink well tonight. You will. Yeah, those are those are two of our best. That Chardonnay that I know you have. And of course, our Oakville, you know, it's in the same camp of some of the best wines in Napa. 
and uh, I'm just so so proud to you know to be part of that. Thank you, Steve. Great plug. Fantastic. I love it. Uh, so anyway, thank you, Barry, for joining us today. It's it's just such a, a gift to be able to talk to somebody who was, you know, in the formative days of Apple and got to work, uh, actually got to work with Steve Jobs. So thanks for joining us and to all of our guests. Thanks for listening and check back because we have more shows coming every week. <laughs>